Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. I'm, excuse me, chapter uh, 14. And we're, we're talking about worship. And I'm going to just call you back to something because we had a video last week. And I want to call you back to something that we, where we normally have been beginning, which is in John chapter 4, where Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the well. And um, this woman comes up to draw water as she does every day. This is in, in Samaria, which was a, a part of Palestine, which was, uh, they were part Jew and they were part Gentile. They were mixture together. And the Jews and the Gentiles didn't speak to each other. They hated each other. It was primarily a, what we would consider a racial issue. Um, and, and those can be very intense and emotional. And Jesus is sitting at this well, and this woman comes up as she has probably every day. And um, he, he speaks to her and says, Would you please give me a drink of water? And she's startled because he's a Samaritan, he's a, ma- he's a Jew, and he's a male. And she says to him, Why would you come and speak to me? Ask me. A, a, a Samaritan woman when you're a Jewish male. And he said, if you knew who it was that was asking, you would ask of me, and I would give you water, living water, that would become in you a well of water springing up into eternal life. And we've talked about that. This is that, that she comes and has, coming to the well, as she does every day, and doesn't realize what's going on here. Because what's the one that's sitting with her at that well is nothing other than God himself in flesh. And she doesn't know that when she comes there because she's so conscious of the flesh, she doesn't know, she's not spiritually discerning who he is. And we use this as a parallel because this applies to us because every time we come to church, every time we come to gather together, we are the body of Christ. And Jesus promised several things in there. He says, where two or more of you are gathered together in in my name, and and there are at least two of us here together in his name, and a whole lot more. He said, there am I, not just in you, but in your midst. He wants to be in our midst, present with us. But we come here and we have, we are dealing with natural things to get here, you know, getting your hair just right and, you know, getting, making sure you got the right clothes on and, you know, getting the kids all dressed and, you know, dealing with just the stuff and issues of life and, and then you got to drive your car, deal with traffic, rain today, whatever else may be going on in your life you're thinking about tomorrow. And we come in here with all those things in our mind and we're very much like that woman coming up to draw water. We're looking and focused on the natural things of life. And when that's all we do and we leave here having sung some nice songs and felt good about it and maybe heard a message that blessed us and we learned some things and we walk out the door the same way, we've done really what she could have done. We had an opportunity to meet with God. We had an opportunity to meet with the God of all creation who made you, gives you every breath you breathe, knows everything that's ever going to happen, has the answer for every issue, question, or problem of life, loves you more than you ever begin to love yourself or anyone else can love you, all put together. He's here desiring to meet with us every time we come together collectively. And so much we miss because we don't realize who it is we have an opportunity to meet with. So she begins to bite because he's trying to raise her level up to begin to recognize there's an opportunity here. And that's why he asks her this question. And, and then Jesus says to her, she says, well, sir, give me that water. And then he changes the subject and begins to talk about her home life. God has a way of doing that, you know. We want to worship him and sing songs. I remember years ago, 
when, when I was a pastor in a small church before, we lived way up in the northern parts of, of Massachusetts on a large, we rented a house that was on 30 acres of land. And, you know, I go out on Mondays just fellowshipping with God in this beautiful woods, just, you know, feeling so good about myself, about how wonderful I was worshiping God and how close with God I felt. You know, God, you're so wonderful. And I'm, 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 I'm really growing, aren't I? Because I'm out here worshiping you today when I could be doing other things. I'm really growing. And the Lord spoke to me as clearly as I've ever heard. He says, son, the measure of your spiritual walk with me is the way you treat your wife when you go back in the house. I said, you've got to give me scripture for that. Well, I'm going to in a few minutes. <laughs> so he starts talking about her home life. And he says, well, go bring your... But he doesn't just... He doesn't say, look, you're living in a sin because he wants to bring her out of that. See, God doesn't want to just judge us and get angry at us. If he does, we'd all... Be, this would just be a room full of just, you know, boiling oil. He'd fry us on the spot. No, he wants to bring us out of where we are, where we're wrong, where we're in sin, where things aren't right. He wants to bring us out of that and, and bring us to the place where we'll receive whatever the adjustment or correction we need to make so he can get us where he wants to get us. And it's a process. He'll meet you where you are. And that's what he's doing with this woman. And he speaks to her. He says, well, so he asks her, he just says, well, <clears throat> here's something I'm giving you to do. Just go call your husband. Well, he knew. And she gets this funny look on her face. She says, um, well, I don't have a husband. So she's telling him truth but not the whole truth, which isn't truth. And Jesus says, that's right. What you tell me is right. You know, we do that with God all the time. We'll go to Him and open up to Him and we'll tell Him some things, but somewhere down inside we're holding something back. We may not even be conscious of it, but we're not just completely open and, and, and vulnerable behind before Him because later on He says, those that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth, openness. So He's trying to open her up. He's trying to get her to be open and honest with him because he, she can't worship him if she's not open and honest with him. But I've learned that you can't be open and honest with God until you're first of all willing to be open and honest with yourself. And so he says to her, that's right, you have no husband. You've had five. And the one you're living with isn't your husband. And she says, I realize you're not just a guy sitting by a water hole. You must be a prophet. So now she's realizing, wait a minute, there's something about this man that she's here visiting with. That's, that's, and that's, see, that's what the gifts of the Spirit are all about. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are to manifest in a, in a church. They can have sent outside the church too. But they're to manifest, A, that God is real, and B, that He's here and cares for us. Because they're supernatural. And that's what Jesus is operating in. He's operating in what in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 calls a word of knowledge, which means supernatural knowledge about something, a fact that exists now that the only way they knew about it is through the Spirit, not through a natural, you know, through taking a survey or going seeing for themselves. And so she was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's something that's just, just natural going on here. There's something about you that's different. And so she begins to look. Now, so now she changes subjects and starts talking about, about worship. And Jesus then goes into what we're going to talk about. But what we're looking at now is he's trying to lead her to a place of worship. But before he can do that, he has to talk to her about where her life is right now. And so we've been talking about 
when we first started talking about worship, we talked about the opportunity of worship, what it means, the opportunity to come and meet with God and what God wants to do when we come and meet with Him. And then we began to talk about this section of it, which is preparation for worship. We discovered in the opportunity of worship, worship is not something, you know, you can, you can, you can, we call it praise and worship, but most of the time that's not what it is. Because praise, the difference between praise and worship is not praise is fast songs and worship is slow songs. You can have a worshipful fast song and you can have a slow praise song. It's not the, it's not the tempo of the music. It's the, it's the focus of the heart. And worship comes as a response to seeing who God is. And that's why we can't just turn worship on. You can't just turn it on and have God's presence show up. I was in here Thursday, I think it was Thursday, just going back and forth saying, God, you know, if you had told me to do something else with this church, then I could, I, you know, I could do it in my own strength somehow or with resources. I could collect people around me that know this is how you build this program, this is how you build this program, this is how you build that program. I said, but God, what you told me to do is to call these people to a place where they come and meet with your presence so that you can come and physically be with us in some form. I said, I can't make that happen, which is exactly where he wants to be but we can't make it happen. I said, then what do I have to do? What do we have to do? And he said, you're to lead them to learn how to reverence me. Because when we reverence him, his presence will come. We looked in Deuteronomy 26, where he says, you are to reverence my Sabbath, but he says, but you are to reverence my, my sanctuary. We heard last week on that video Pastor Simbala talking about Jesus said, my, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. One of the reasons I showed it last week was because what he was talking about is, is this, this, this building can either be our church or God's church. Our church is what we want to make of it. And there are a lot of churches out there that are like that. The pastor or the committee, whoever it is, they're making the church into what they want. They're building a church. God told me early on, your responsibility is not to build a church. That's my responsibility. Jesus said, I will build my church. See, when we build a church, we build our church. It may be what I want. It may be what you want. It may be what we want together. But that's not the issue. Is it his church? Is it his church we're building? Because we can't build his church. Only he can build his church. Psalm 127 says, unless God builds the church house, they that labor, labor in vain. Well, in vain doesn't mean you can't build something. There are churches out there, I believe, that are thousands upon thousands, but as I listen to them and I hear them, I'm wondering where God is in that church. Man can build it, build church. You can build it with, you know, smoke and whistles and all kinds of gimmicks and devices. You can have charismatic personalities that can build tremendous churches, people just collect around. I'm not saying anything wrong with large churches. There's some, I'm sure I know there are large churches that God's built because they can be churches of influence. But the point is, are we here to build what we want or to be drawn into what He wants? And what He wants for Faith Christian Center and what He wants in different churches is different things. What He wants here is for us to create an atmosphere where we reverence Him. Deuteronomy 26 says, you are to reverence my sanctuary. 
because I am the Lord. And so we've talked about how do we do that. What is it that's necessary to prepare? We went and looked that, that this is what Jesus is doing with the woman at the well. We saw that the first thing that is, is we must reverence his word. We must reverence his word because he and his word are one. How you see God's word is how you see him. See, our real attitude, the deeper attitudes of our heart towards God are not revealed by our emotions. This is where so many people miss it. We think because we cry, we jump, we get goosebumps, that that means we have a reverence for God. That may be part of it, but that doesn't prove the reverence for God. It's what he says proves it. We gave this scripture. I'm not going to have you turn there. But it's in Isaiah chapter 66. It's around verse 1 or 2. It says, it says that what I, des- what I desire, God says. What I desire. You can have wonderful programs. You can have great things, and that's fine. But God says, what I desire, just as we heard last week, my Father's house shall be a house of prayer. What I desire is a, is a humble and a contrite heart and one that trembles at my word. That's not fear of picking it up. That's not a fear of what God's going to say to me. It's an awesome respect that this is God's word to me. This is what God says. And we spend some time looking over the implications of that and the reverence. We can't worship God on our terms. You can't make him show up. You can make goosebumps and you can manipulate people and you can even manipulate yourself but you can, and you can have them stir up emotion and I'm not saying that's all bad. What you can't do is make God show up. He'll show up on His terms. So if we want Him to do that and we've read in John 4, He longs to do that. So we're not trying to talk him into something he doesn't want to do and, oh, all right, they want me to do this. No, he's calling us to this. He's calling us to this. I've never been clearer. I've never been more confident of a focus and a direction that I am now in my entire life because I know God's calling us to this. I know God's calling us to this. Some may disagree. Some may go with other things. I don't, it doesn't, I don't, not that I don't care. It doesn't distract me from the focus. And there are others hearing it, sensing it. That's God's Spirit doing it. That's not because I'm so good at whipping it up and we got great programs and we're doing all, everything all right to, to structure things. No, we're not. We're just trying to hear the voice of God and do what God says to do. Tremble at his word, respect and reverence for his word. Because you can't reverence God and not reverence his word. John chapter 12. Uh, th- uh, what did he say, 12 or 13? 14? Yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. Okay, here it is. John 14. We're going to go to John 13. John 14, verse 15. Now we're talking about reverencing his word. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, you'll keep my word. If you love me, you'll, you'll do what I say. You'll obey my commandments. So the principle here is, and then go down to verse 23. 
Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We'll do what? We'll come and dwell among him. Notice, make my home with him. Not in him. With him. He said earlier, verse 16, I'll pray the Father and He'll give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. It's not just God in you by the Spirit, but we're talking about God dwelling with us. Manifesting Himself. His glory, His presence. We looked back in the Old Testament and we saw that God's presence was among them in that tent of the tabernacle. But when they rebelled and wouldn't do what God said twice, God said, I'm taking my presence away from you. And Moses says, if you remove your presence, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere without your presence. Because it's your presence that makes it clear who we are. It's your presence that makes us known to the world. See, that's the problem with so many evangelism programs. They're out trying to talk about the Lord, but there's no... Jesus said, I've called to you to be my witness not go witness. There's nothing wrong with going. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But the power to do that is we are witnesses in our life of His presence and of His power in our lives. I've read the story of Smith Wigglesworth one time on a train. Got up from his seat to go somewhere else. He's walking down the aisle of, a, of the tree, just walking down the aisle, and a priest falls out on the floor behind him and says, Man, what do I got to do to be saved? He never opened his mouth. Charles Finney, visiting a, visiting a, a mill in upstate New York, walks in into kind of the visitor's area, and all the machineries are running. And he stands there, and there's some young girls over there, and, you know, from the pictures, I've, drawings I've seen of him. He's kind of odd-looking. And these young teenage girls start looking at him, start laughing, kind of making fun of his looks, I guess. And he just stood there and looked at them. And pretty soon, the laughter turned to shaking. And he fell on their faces and cried out, what do we have to do to be saved? He never said a word. Started a commotion. People start running around and they come over near these girls. They start falling down saying, what do I have to do to be saved? He doesn't open his mouth. Pretty soon the plant manager comes over and says, what's going on here? And he looks at the scene. He looks at Finney and he looks at this crowd crying. He hasn't said a word. And the manager realizes, he says, do you have something to say to us that can answer this? He said, I do. He shut the plant down. He said, you stand here and say whatever you've got to say without saying a word. Without saying, it wasn't his charismatic personality. It wasn't apparently his handsome looks. It was the power of God in his life that if you read his life story, it's because he spent time with God. He worshiped him. He reverenced him. And he had an encounter with God out in the woods when he got saved that ran through him all night. He had an encounter with the living God. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with the living God. Changed him. Moses had an encounter with the living God. And the church desperately needs, desperately needs, desperately needs an encounter with the living God. It's not another program. It's not another institution. 
It's not another seminar. It's not another way of doing things. It's God we need. We know about him. We know what he does. So did Israel. But Moses knew his ways. So he could talk about him. The church doesn't know his ways. We know about him. So it starts by being honest with where we are. Individually and as a church. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will come with my Father and will abide. Not visit. Abide with you. Well, what's his commandments? That's the next thing we got to look at. All right. If we got to keep his commandments, what's his commandments? Now go back to chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Oh, I wish it had been something else. I wish it had been give more money. I'd rather do that sometimes. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that makes it even tougher. Because he loved people that hated him. He loved people that persecuted him. He loved people that disagreed with him. He loved people that didn't understand him. He loved people that talked about him. He loved people that spit on him. He loved people that beat him. He loved people that abused him. He loved people that took him and drove nails in his hands and in his feet. He loved people that crucified him. He loved the Roman soldiers. He loved the Sadducees and Pharisees that lied about him. He loved every one of them because he went through it for them. That you love one another as I have loved you. 1 John chapter 5. We may not get through all this today. That's okay. The first thing that we need to do in order to create an atmosphere, prepare for worship, is we must be living in reverence with His Word. The second thing we're talking about today is how we relate to one another is an indication of our attitude towards God. We'll see that here in 1 John chapter 5. Verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loves Him who begot Him, listen to this, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. In other words, if we love God, if we love Christ, then we're going to love everybody who's begotten out of him. If we love God, we're going to love everyone that he loves, who has come out of him. Look at this. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Whoever overcomes the world but him who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Go to chapter 3. Excuse me, I want to go up back to chapter 5. We're going to go up to chapter 4, verse 
19. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, this is the verse God gave me when I said, he said, the measure of your spirituality with me is how you treat your wife. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't mince words, does he? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The Apostle John is saying that it's not what we say towards God, it's what we do towards our brethren is one of the indications of how much we love him. How can we say I really, how can we sincerely love God and hate someone that God has made and God loves and God has saved. How can we do that? James says in chapter 4, how, how can sweet water and bitter water come out of the same fountain? There are just certain things that are not possible. And see, in our mind it can be possible because we've compromised. We've settled for our emotions as an indication of where we are in our heart and not the attitude of our heart. We've talked about the attitude of our heart towards God's Word. Now a consequence of that is what His Word says to do is we're, we're not suggested. We're not encouraged. He doesn't say, I really want you to strongly. We're commanded, we're commanded to love one another. That changes the issue. That changes the issue now from trying hard to obedience or disobedience. There's no middle, middle ground. I'm either obeying that commandment and I, or I'm not obeying that commandment. I'm either committed to obey it or I'm not committed to obey it. And anything that tries to be in between compromises one or the other. And when we do that, what we do is we close our heart to God. Maybe not your emotions, but our heart. This is what His Word says. And if we're, see, if we're just going to you know, have church and enjoy one another and enjoy the music and enjoy the teaching and enjoy fellowship times together and different programs, if that's all we're going to do, then you don't need to do this. You can read your Word and get blessed by it but it doesn't have to be an authority in my life, but we're not going to have His church. We're not going to build His kingdom, His way. And most likely, with what looks like coming, we won't make it. Because Paul wrote and said in these last days, perilous times will come, and many, he's talking about Christians, will fall away from the faith. We don't like to hear that, but it's in there. So we have time to prepare so we don't fall away from the faith. And I believe those that don't fall away from the faith are those that are really seeking Him. Really seeking Him. When Jesus walked on the earth, there were different categories of people that followed Him. There was a huge crowd, multitudes it says, but the first time he said something that was different, 
What did they do? They walked away. Because they basically came for the food. Because he'd been feeding people, he'd been healing people, they came for the stuff they were going to get. And when he started talking about, you know, uh, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, John chapter 6, they just started going away. Then he had a group of 70, and they got shaky on him. And finally he looked at the 12, and he said to them, are you going too? And Peter's answer is so telling. He says, who else has the words of life? See, what they were after were those words of life. They didn't understand, but they were after him. They were after the living water. They were after what he offered to the woman at the well. They were after what he had. They were after him. They were seeking him. They were following him. They didn't understand things. They got confused and frustrated at times. They didn't know why he did certain things. They thought he was going to do some things. Then he turned and did other things. So he threw them off track every once in a while. But all they did was kept their eyes on him, and they got through it. But the multitude walked away and missed what he had for them. Moses was called by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the place God had called them, the promised land. I was reading through this story again this week, and the Lord woke me up. He says, you realize the first generation didn't make it. It was not God's will that they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. It was God's will that they enter the promised land. But they chose to, they didn't choose, remember the, remember the, the, the decision where God brought, Moses brought them out to meet God on the mountain? They chose instead what God was offering them, their own thing. And that went downhill from there and ended up with them not getting into the promised land. The entire next generation is what it took. So God calls us to something, but doesn't mean everybody answers and goes. Let us be among those that hear. Let us be among those that seek. That's what God's doing here. He's preparing us. He's calling us. And let's, let's listen and be willing. So this is important to God because he says, the way you love one another is what you think of me. Because how can you love me and hate your brother? Well, it gets more interesting. Let's go for chapter 3, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It doesn't say because of the bumper stickers you have, because you have the fish sign on your car. It doesn't say because you carry your Bible. It doesn't say because you come to church. It says because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. I'm not talking about whether you go to heaven or not. You're living in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, hate's a pretty strong word. It doesn't mean you're maybe upset at somebody. Hate is, is really vindictive. I want to destroy them. But notice, he has, cannot have eternal life abiding in him. All right, what we're talking about here is that, first of all, our willingness to obey His commandment to love one another is a reflection of what we think of Him. Second thing we're going to talk about, go to Matthew 22. 
verse 34. This is Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Those two groups didn't like each other. They gathered together. And one of them, said, a lawyer, said to him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He's saying this. Moses was given ten commandments. The religious leaders had expanded those into some 600 or over 600 rules. He says, but it all boils down to this. What it's really all about is this. All you've got to remember is what's really important. All those hang on this. You shall love the Lord your God first with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But there's a second one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying everything's wrapped up in that. Everything, in essence, comes down to that. If you want to know what to do or what not to do, it's just that. We're going to see next week that if you fulfill this law, you fulfill all the commandments. So it's real, really simple in the sense of remembering. You don't have to memorize the Ten Commandments. It's nice to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's a good exercise to do. But in terms of living, you just got to remember two. Really simple ones to remember is the living out of them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what Jesus is saying. Now let's get a little more specific to what we're talking about. Go over to Matthew 5. We're going to start in verse... He's talking about the commandments. He basically says, I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So there's some people that teach, well, you know, because we're under grace, the Ten Commandments don't apply to us. Jesus didn't say, I came to get rid of them. I came to fulfill them to give you the ability to live them out the grace to live them out. <clears throat> but we've just heard he simplified it for them. In case you're having trouble remembering them all, it's real simple. It comes down to two of them. You do those with all your heart, that'll take care of the rest of them. But he's not saying, I didn't come to get rid of them and replace them with something. I came to fulfill them, to carry them out. <clears throat> and he did. Verse 20, I say unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard, now he's going to tell you what this means. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, you shall, and, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. He says, These are in the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. But I say to you, 
whoever's angry with his brother without cause. Now, some of you all have translations that don't have the word without cause in there because there are some manuscripts out there that leave that out. Without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to your brother, Raka, that's to call him a name, shall be in danger of counsel. Whoever says to your fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So he's talking now not about what you do outwardly, not whether I'm friendly with them. He's talking about the attitude in here. Now, he's not saying it's never okay to be angry. Because in Ephesians, Paul says, be angry and sin not. What's at root here, and we're going to see later on, because walking in love does not mean that you're a doormat. Walking in love does not mean you put up with everything and smile and say, brother, I love you. Whatever you want to do is okay. No, we're going to learn love requires you to draw lines sometimes, make decisions. Love requires you to sometimes... To, Paul, it several times, <clears throat> tells them in, in, in their church, you gotta, there's some discipline that's got to go on. You've got to deal with some things. And his method of discipline was where we get the... The Catholic Church gets its, 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 the, the, the excommunication. It's you separated them out of the body for a while so they had a sense of what it was like to be separated from the body of Christ with the idea of redeeming them, saying, I want to come back. I don't want to be out here on my own. But Paul dealt with some things. We saw last week on the video, Jesus went... This is Jesus who's saying these words. He went through the temple with a cord and caused a riot. He kicked the tables over, drove them out. But see, he was never angry for himself. Paul was never angry for himself or defending himself. He was angry for God's sake. Jesus was said, my father's house. He didn't say my house. He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. So walking in love does not mean that there are times you may not have a righteous anger. You just need to make sure your flesh isn't in it. It's not really about you and what they said about you and what they're thinking about you, but it all comes back to Him and His kingdom and His purposes and His heart and His desire. And He has some ways to determine that. We're not going to get into it, but He says, before you start helping your brother to pick the splinter out of their eye. Make sure you first remove the beam that's in yours. You know why? Because what often helps us recognize the fault in somebody else is because we're looking at that fault through the same fault in us. That's why we recognize it. And we want to deal with it in them because it's really revealing something in us we don't want to face. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about judging people because really in your own heart you're angry at something else other than for the kingdom of God. We dress it up like the kingdom of God, but what's really going on in our heart? And the real proof of it is when God forgives somebody, you don't want them. Think about that a second. When God forgives somebody and you don't want them, I'm going to say that again. Because if it's really about the kingdom of God and God forgives them, that should settle it. But when God forgives them and we want to hold on to it because we're right, but God said it's okay with me, I've forgiven them, then we know it's not about the kingdom of God. It's about something that's gotten under my skin. 
which is my flesh. So he's talking here. Now look where it goes. Verse 23. Therefore, remember what I've taught you. When you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. Therefore tells me that what he's about to say is based on what he just said. So what he's just told them is I know the law says, you know, it's not right, you can't murder somebody. But I'm telling you, there's a way you can be murdering somebody without ever picking up a gun or a knife or a stone or, or a stick. You can murder them in your heart. Therefore I say unto you, because that's what God requires, that's what's really at issue here. What's going on in your heart is really what's at issue here. Therefore I say unto you, that if you bring your gift to the altar, he's talking about worship now. If you're bringing your gift, because they brought a gift for the purpose of worship. It wasn't just tithes and offerings like we do today, although that's worship also, or should be. He's talking about worship. They brought their gift. It could have been an animal to sacrifice. It could have been uh, money. Whatever it is they bought, he's talking about worship here. If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. He's not even talking about if you have something against your brother. He's going beyond that. If there's something you know your brother has against you, in other words, if you've done something that might have caused your brother to get angry at you, verse 24, leave your gift before the altar and go your way first First, we're talking about preparation to worship, real worship. We're talking about preparing an atmosphere where God will come and dwell and bring His presence here. And we've learned we can't do it on our terms. It's what He says. And here He says, first, before you attempt to come and worship me in the heart, first of all, before you do that, leave what you're going to bring it down. Set it down. And first, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So this tells me that in God's eyes, what counts to him before he can come and bring his presence here is what we're doing with each other in our heart. Not the nice smile on our face when we see him in the foyer. Oh, it's so good to see you. And we're lying through our teeth. <laughs> Not, I got to sit over here because this person sitting over did me something a couple of years ago and they, you know, I've never got it. So I got to sit over here and they got to sit over here. That's called division. And we can smile, raise our hands, tears coming down our cheeks and be sincere. But down in our hearts, there's things we've never dealt with. Down in our hearts, where worship comes from, down in our hearts where God is dwelling but can't have free reign because other things are there. Down in our hearts we're holding on to things that in God's eyes offend Him. Offend Him. And we're inviting Him to worship with things in our heart that are... Remember talks about sweet, swelling, sweet, swelling, sweet smelling aroma going up to Him. It's not the words. It's the heart. It's the heart. Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence 
That's very strong. Why? Because it's out of your heart flow the issues of life, of spiritual life. First of all, before you come and offer something to me, go reconcile with your brother. 1 Corinthians 13. It's been a while since I've taught in here, so I'd mention it, but I'm not going to dwell on it. This is called the love chapter, which is obviously why we're going to look at it now. But that's not really what it is in here for. It's sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14. If you go back and read chapter 1 and then especially chapter 3, actually read all through there, you'll find that Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to bring correction to a church that he had founded. That in their mind had become so spiritual that they thought they were more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. See, spiritual pride can get you to that place where you think you know more than your mentor, than your spiritual father. That's what they've done. This is the Apostle Paul. And they got to the point so filled with spiritual pride by looking at what they knew, what they could do, that they became convinced they knew more than he did to the point that they said he couldn't come into the church he founded. But notice how lovingly he handles this. Paul, if you look in there, he talks about, well, this, you, know, you have these gifts and you operate in these gifts. And he goes through chapter 12 talking about the gifts and he outlines what the gifts are for and, and, and what they are basically their purpose. They're to bring unity, he says, not division. But he starts the whole letter out by talking about the divisions that were in that church. He says, you think you're so spiritual, but in reality you're carnal. Why do I know you're carnal? Because there's divisions among you. Some say you're a Paul. Some say you're of Apollos, who was a teacher that came in later. Some say you're of, of Christ. Some say, he says, has Christ been divided? Don't you understand what we are? We're the body of Christ. He said, I didn't save you. Apollos didn't save you. He goes in chapter 3, he says, there's only foundation that his church can be laid on is Jesus Christ. And all I did is I built something on his foundation. Apollos came along and he built something else. But the one who causes the increase is God. There it is. Only God can produce the results. That's what this church was like. Then he gets more specific with some of the issues and now he's talking about spiritual gifts because they thought because these gifts apparently flowed through them in great frequency and great abundance and part of what seems that their confidence that God, they were so spiritual was God was using them so mightily that the Spirit of God will flow through anything that's open. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're spiritual. Not in God's eyes. So what he's doing is he's trying to show them, first of all, in chapter 12, the gifts of the Spirit are the gifts of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Corinthian church. They're not there to validate you and prove what a great prophet you are or a great witness you are or a great pastor or a great teacher. They're there because they're there to reveal who God is and there's only one God, there's only one Lord, there's only one Spirit. And you've divided Him up. Well, you can't. So it's not the Spirit of God. Chapter 14, he deals with specifically the gift of tongues and then the interpretation of tongues 
and prophecy a little bit in there. But in the middle, right in the heart of it, he says these words. We're talking about the presence of God now. He says these words. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Each of these was a reference back to one of the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. That's the gift of tongues. But I have not love in God's eyes. This may, the church, it may sound beautiful. Flowing in the Spirit. Oh, just so beautiful. But here's what God hears. That's what we're talking about. What does God hear? When we, when we come in and we worship Him, what does God hear? When we come and pray, what does God hear? What is, what is this for him? Because that's who we're endeavoring to please. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love in my heart. I'm not motivated by love. I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. In other words, a discordant sound. Though I have the gift of prophecy, that's another gift of the Spirit, but understand all mysteries and all knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge. Though I have all faith, the gift of faith, so I could move mounds. That would impress people, wouldn't it? I mean, if you had the gift of faith to the point that you could physically speak to a mountain and cause it to get up and move, that would, you could form a church right around that. This is the church of the mountain-moving faith. And people would be impressed. Oh, did you see what Pastor, what are, what's his name, did? Oh, he, they spoke together, they agreed, and that physical mountain went up and it went into the Narragansett Bay. Not that it needs it. Wow! But what does God see? What does God see? There's a lot of services going on there with all kinds of things happening. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong. My question is, what does God see? What does God see? If I do that and I have not love, in God's eyes, I'm nothing. I may have impressed everybody around me. I may be on three TV channels. I may have this multi-billion dollar ministry now. But in God's eyes, it counts as zero, zip, zilch, nil, none. It counts as not a good try, not, it was a nice rep- attempt to represent me. It's nothing. If what's motivating me, if what's in my heart, when I'm doing anything for God, if it's not love, in God's eyes, it is nothing. Amen. Nothing. That's the whole message here because to this church he was talking to, they were doing all these things in the Spirit but with pride in their heart and arrogance in their heart and look at me and look at the vision I have and look what I'm able to do. All of that was in their heart and God says in my eyes, because it's not motivated by love. Verse 3, though, by, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. This is, these are programs now. Though I have pro, wonderful programs to feed the poor. Though I give my body to be burned. I mean, Romans 12, 1 says we pre- present our bodies the living sacrifice. Though I've done that. But, it pro, but, it, but I have not love. It profits me nothing. 
I can have all the wonderful feeding programs. I can have all these wonderful benefit programs. But if what's motivating me, what's motivating me isn't the love of God. Love for Him, first of all, and then for each other. It counts as nothing. So I can be doing all those things, but look back over what we talked about. If I'm angry at somebody without cause, if I'm holding, if I'm holding something against somebody and you're doing all those things, I'm not in walking in love. I'm not walking in love. I'm not walking in love. In God's eyes, it's not, hey, those are some nice things. It's nothing. Why? Because God is love. And if my responsibility is to represent Him in the world and represent Him to one another, you represent what's in your heart, not what you say. And if I'm, what's in my heart is not love, I can't be representing Him. I might be doing things for Him, but that's a long shot from representing Him. I can only represent Him to people. I can only represent Him to you. I, you can only represent Him to one another. We can only represent Him if we're walking in love because He is love. And when I step outside of love, I step outside of Him. I'm not talking about whether you go to heaven or not. You're not walking in Him anymore. So what you're doing, what you're bringing to people, what you're singing here, what you're doing out in the community isn't Him, it's us. So if we're going to prepare an atmosphere of reverence for Him, it's got to be motivated. It's got to have at the heart of it. Not just a love for Him, but what we see, we can't love Him. That's easy. It's the stuff. Yeah, but no. Did you see who's sitting next to me over here? You know what they did to me a few years? You know what they're doing? By the love, of, by the way, if we love people, we won't gossip. We'll get into that next week. Don't miss that one. We'll bring this to a close. And he says, this, if you want to know what that love is like, here it is, verse 4. Notice this isn't defined love. It just tells you how to recognize it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. It's talking about how we get along, with, how we see each other. Love suffers long with other people. Love is kind to other people. Love does not envy other people. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely when you pull out onto 195 after leaving church and somebody cuts you off. <laughs> Love does not seek its own. Look at this next one. Love is not provoked. Flesh is, but love is not provoked. New King James says it thinks no evil, but the real underneath it says it keeps no account of evil. Aren't you glad God doesn't keep an account of our sins? Then He expects us not to do that with others. 
Doesn't mean they aren't confronted at times, but when they've been dealt with, the accounts are raised. It does not rejoice in iniquity. That's gossip. It's Because when, when, when you gossip about somebody, there's something in your flesh that feels good. You know what they did. That's rejoicing in their iniquity. But it rejoices in the truth. Just to sum it up, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, the love of God, never fails. There's more to this we'll pick up on next week because we'll begin to apply it now. When you're dealing with situations in your life, the Bible has some instructions on how to, how to walk in love in those situations and what to do. And we'll look at that next time. But the message of today is simply this. If we really want God's presence in our life, operating in our life, if we really want God's presence here and this to be a place where he can come and display himself and manifest himself, if we really want that, then we have to meet his requirements. And that requires us to walk in love, not just with him, but with one another. Now, that can be a process. We'll talk about that. That can be a process because we're growing, learning to overcome our flesh. But we'll see that God's put his love for other people already in your heart, Romans 5.5. 5. So it's in there. It's just whether we choose to give it or not. Drawing near to God, we learned before, is always challenging to us because the closer you get to him, the more his purity reveals your impurities. The more your, his light reveals the things that we have, the shades of darkness that we've allowed in our life where we've compromised certain things. The closer you get to him, the more he requires of you, but the freer you are, the more joyful you are, the more of God's life and power flows through you. We saw where he said, if you abide outside of his love, you abide in death. There's so many Christians that are abiding to some degree or other in some form of death. I'm not talking about physical death, a spiritual death where they're bogged down, they're miserable, they're hurting, they're, they're confused. That's a form of death. And Jesus came to give the woman at the well, what? Living water. The disciple says, we, we've looked everywhere else, but nobody else has the words of life. 